If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And the last two verses that sort of are still, in one sense or another, spinning off the story of the transfiguration, which is the first main section in Mark 9. Our text for this morning focusing on really one fundamental thing, prayer. But he mentions two others along the way, and those will sort of make up our outline. But I'm very aware of the fact that verses 28 and 29 land on and focus their ultimate attention upon the fundamental importance of prayer in the Christian life and how we are to think about prayer in our own lives and how we are to think about prayer as relating to the world around us as well. Because all of those issues are sort of bound up with what the disciples ask and what Jesus answers them. So let's stand one more time, um, Mark 9, 28 and 29, and then uh, we'll look to the Lord in prayer. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Speaking of the... uh, man's son who was possessed by a demon and the disciples in the previous paragraph failed to cast it out. Verse 29, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's look to the Lord. Father in heaven, unto you we cry out, for you are our rock, and we ask that you not remain silent from us when we call out to you in prayer, but that you would answer us. For we sense that if you tune us out and if you become silent, then we become hopeless. And we are like the hopelessness of those dying outside of Christ and going down into the pit in that we feel like we have been left completely to ourselves. And if left to ourselves, that would surely be our fate. So, Lord, hear the sound of our supplication and our cries for help unto you. For we have many reasons to call out to you, 
Some of them related to our health. Some of them related to our vocations. Some of them related to the world that we live in. Some related to the spread of the gospel through missions. We just think of all of our supplications, all of our prayer requests that we so regularly lift up as we cry out for help from you, as we lift up our hands and by means of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access into your very presence symbolized as the place in which the high priest once a year would be able to enter the most holy place. But you assure us that we in Christ enter your very presence through prayer because of the work of his cross. And Lord, we thank you so much for that. Father, do not allow us to be just dragged along with the course of this world, to become just like those who practice iniquity, to those hypocritical souls who say one thing in their heart, well, or I should say, who say one thing out loud, well, in their heart they think something completely different. You warn us against such things. We pray, Father, that your enemies would be dealt with according to justice, according to the evil of their deeds, according to the work of their hands. Give to them a just recompense. We pray that you would be merciful to your people. For your enemies, you will surely tear them down and you will not build them back up. But you are blessed. And among the blessings we have from you is that you indeed do hear of our supplications. You are our strength. You are our shield. And in you, we trust. You help us. You exalt us. You give us a song in our hearts. You fill us with reasons for thanksgiving. You are a strength to us. You are a place of refuge. You are a salvation to all who are in your anointed. And so are all who have faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We are in Christ, in the Messiah, in the Anointed One. So we pray, O Lord, that you would save us as your people and that you would bless us as your everlasting inheritance and that you would shepherd us and that you would carry us through our lives with the promise that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, but we will dwell ultimately in the house of the Lord forever. We rest in this in Jesus' name. Amen.
be seated. We watched a very old movie not that long ago, and I was reminded of how catchy the uh, central song of that movie was. I didn't realize quite in the history of film how prominent it was considered. The song itself was written all the way back in 1931 uh, by a guy named Herman Hupfeld. That's a jazz song. In the movie, uh, in, the, in the movie, it is sung uh, by a singer who's all acting in the film as well. He plays the piano player in Rick's Bar in Casablanca in Morocco. Um, Dooley Wilson, his name. At the end of the century, when they uh, looked back on all of the songs that had ever appeared in the movies through the first hundred years of film, uh, they ranked them from one to a hundred, the top 100. And this song came in second. Um, this song came in second. Now, some of you who are great at uh, trivia, would you already know which song came in first. Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland. But second of all the songs that have ever appeared in film is this tune called As Time Goes By. As Time Goes By. Now, I got to thinking about it because of the final phrases in the opening verse uh, where he sings this. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. Almost any topic that you lift up has its own short list of fundamental things that relate to it. Um, I'm a semi-Charles Dickens novels Fan. I haven't read them all, but I've read quite a number of them. And among Charles Dickens' fa- favorite themes, most focused themes, most passionately shared themes, is the danger of debt, spending more money than you make. Well, in economics, you see, that's That's one of the fundamental things that apply. If for long enough you keep spending more money than you make, bad things will happen. Um, So it's hard to be an optimist, you know, in the United States if you look up our debt clock. 
and watching it, watch it spin into the 30-odd trillions of dollars and spinning every single hour faster than it did before. You see, it's as if we don't really believe. We don't believe the song, but we're wrong not to believe it because you know what? It always turns out in the end. The fundamental things do apply. The fundamental things indeed apply as time goes by. Jesus and his disciples are all back together now. Um, and in fact, uh, they've, uh, they've pulled him aside to ask him a question. And as they pull him aside to ask him this question, which turns out to be a fairly fundamental question that we can often ask of ourselves in any given avenue of our experience. In fact, a a question that we are very wise to regularly ask of ourselves because we never go that far without realizing that things aren't always going terribly well. But they do this first fundamental thing as they, they go aside with Jesus all by himself and then they ask a question. What went wrong? What went wrong? Why weren't we able to cast out the demon. And then he gives them an answer related to one of the great fundamentals of spiritual existence, namely prayer. Let me read the text to you again. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. That is, he asked them, they asked him while they were alone with him. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out except by prayer. Uh, State our thesis for this morning this way. We're called upon to put fundamental spiritual patterns into practice. Two of them, as I say, are just alluded to in this text, but the third one is the focus of the two verses, uh, namely prayer. But it is interesting that the first two are also very fundamental spiritual principles in themselves. I've stated the first one this way. We are to practice the fundamental importance of getting alone with Jesus. And when they entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. Or uh, his disciples asked him, well, they were alone. You see, this is in contrast with the previous paragraph where it's the disciples, Jesus, the crowd, and particularly a segment of the crowd which is the scribes that are desperately and focused in their opposition to Jesus. Well, now the disciples meet together with Jesus, and the crowd isn't there, and the opposition party of the scribes 
isn't there. And this is really the kind of pattern that we are told we need to practice throughout our lives as disciples, right? right? We, we pull aside from the world and we gather together with fellow disciples, because this isn't, you know, your quiet time here. This is 12 people together with Jesus. This is much more analogous to what we're doing right now. This is much more analogous to what we'll be doing in the next hour in Sunday school. This is much more analogous to what you're doing when you attend a Bible study, right? You leave the rest of the world behind, and you gather with a group of disciples alone, apart from the world, to focus on Jesus. And as it turns out, that is considered in the New Testament to be quite a fundamentally important thing. Remember how it's put by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, or excuse me, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He said, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And he says, well, here's one of the central ways, one of the mental fundamental ways you do that. You, you gather together. He said, so don't neglect that. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you say, the day drawing near. It's an amazing thing as you chart across the United States what a difference it makes in what part of your country you are. We usually do this with a political map of some kind, and there is overlap between the two. But you get exactly the same results if you do it in relation to the percentage of people that pull aside and meet privately or on their own with Jesus. 
So we live in the Midwest where a relatively large percentage of people still do that. But if you go to the Northeast, for instance, where 400 years ago they they did that with great regularity, in fact, you know, in almost all those New England towns, if their building is old enough, you'll find that there is a congregational church building built on the highest point in town, uh, Meeting House Hill. It was considered to be the focal point of, 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 of everything. Um, but that has changed now. And now in New England, of, uh, of the people who live there, uh, roughly 3% of them, 3% of them uh, will show up at a place of worship on a Sunday. They'll pull aside to be with Jesus. And if you ask the question, well, has it, has it really hurt them in any way to do that? Well, I'll, tell, I'll just tell you this. When you're in that part of the country, you'll tend to be with a group of people who, for the most part, can't remember what marriage is anymore. And they can't tell the difference between a man and a woman anymore. And the closer you are to a group of people who pulls aside, who fails to pull aside, and meet with Jesus in that way. The closer you are to a large percentage of people who don't know what marriage is anymore, and who will at least tell you out loud and believe they're doing a virtuous thing when they do so, that they can't distinguish clearly between who's a man. And who's a woman? So this thing of pulling aside and getting alone with Jesus for reasons that we'll come back to in a minute in a related way, but it, it, it might turn out to be a bigger thing than you think, than you realize it's a big deal you see to pull aside and to get together with a group of people where you on a regular basis re-engage with revealed reality which is to say re-engage with reality for the revelation of God is the revelation of the creator of reality It's a big deal. 
Now, just an aside here, this is a word not from the Lord, as Paul would say, but just from a cultural observer. Now, some of you, the best, the best of you that I have challenged on this, you did amaze me and put me in my place. You absolutely put me in my place as I question whether or not a, 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 an electronic Bible on your phone is better than the paper Bible. And when you, some of you are really good at showing me everything that that can do, that is amazing. I was, I was amazed. I was amazed. And I was, in one sense, put in my place. And I will not make that mistake to pose that challenge to anyone again, especially if they're a younger person who knows that kind of stuff well. Uh, I was amazed. But there's still a downside, right? And the downside is... When we're using that as our Bible, we use it nine-tenths of the time to go to Amazon and to go here and there and Facebook and X and all of those things. And I submit to you as a Calvinistic Augustinian um, with Pauline roots to those things that the average American does not possess the kind of self-discipline that it takes to hold that kind of device in their hand and not be pulled back into the broader world by it. So I'm just saying at the very least, be careful. Be very careful uh, as we make these technological shifts that we are not doing ourselves some kind of harm. Uh, Commercial over. There it is. Uh, Back to one thing that doesn't apply quite so well, but it relates to it. And I'm going to uh, just say a word about Jesus does believe also in getting together with him individually. One-on-one privately. That kind of thing is referred to in the Sermon on the Mount, right, in Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in prayer in the synagogue and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. What a beautiful, encouraging picture that is of private Bible reading and prayer. But you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will repay you. Getting alone with God corporately and personally, individually, is among the fundamental things that will help us as we pass through this world. Secondly, we are to practice the fundamental importance of asking the question, what went wrong? What went wrong? 
And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Now this was pressing on them because they had not merely failed. They had failed rather publicly. When a great crowd, and not just publicly, but they got to fail in front of the crowd containing a specifically focused opposition party that no doubt took some glee uh, in their failure. And so it was quite a humiliating experience. And so they want to ask Jesus the question, what happened? Why couldn't we cast it out? Now the reason an apparently strange text on divorce was read this morning um, uh, by the worship team is that that text, Mark 10.10, is in the margin of my Bible right here. Uh, Because the connection between the two is that in Mark 10, the disciples pulled Jesus aside to ask him a question. A question that is really, really fundamental in the culture in which he lived, the Jewish culture in particular, which he lived, which you've heard many times over the years, right? There's two uh, basic schools of rabbinical thought on how the Old Testament teaches uh, divorce works. One of them quite strict, the other one quite American-like, laissez-faire, and um, they were likely trying to get Jesus to side with one of those two parties. And, um, and he doesn't exactly do that, but he does do enough to raise the question for the disciples. Um, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Um, Here's how the passage opened up. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Um, and, And they assume that there they go. They've given Jesus his sufficient, a sufficient answer prove that they know the kind of thing that Moses wrote. But now he comes back on them. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. Um, In other words, so what is Jesus doing there? He's he's just pointing out something. 
namely, look. Moses adds a provision for the, from, the, about, from the hardness of your heart. He doesn't mean to be telling you anything about the divine intention for marriage. Uh, Matthew's gospel in, in the parallel account makes the issue even more plain. Uh, Matthew 19, 3 and 4. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and they are no longer two but one flesh. Whatever God has joined together, let not a man separate So what's Jesus saying there? Well, he's saying this. He's saying, look, when you read the creation account, marriage is designed for life, period. That's the design. Now, it's a a pre-fall institution. It's in the beginning. Both of these quotations that Jesus makes are from Genesis. The first one from Genesis 1.27 about male and female. The second one from Genesis 2.24 about a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife. And, and there it is. And so the implication is the thing that you're bringing up in the law only comes up because of Genesis 3. Because of the fall. Because of hardness of heart. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that has to do with some major news articles that appeared just this past week in the Washington Post where somebody was taking up the whole issue of, look, you know, I don't know how many years ago we invented marriage, but uh, it's frankly now in America a regular pretty clearly a failed institution. And, you know, to give tax breaks to married people makes no sense. We're propping up, we're propping up kind of a backward, bygone, dead uh, institution. The institution of marriage simply isn't all that important it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And, and this was for Valentine's Day, you know, so um, that's, that's when the article came out, you know. So this is for Valentine's Day, so that, that you realize that, you know, that outside of marriage really are probably the best sort of relationships anyways. But the key, the key thing to hear that relates to this text is... Marriage is a failed institution. And Jesus pulls aside to say, no, marriage is actually a divinely sanctioned institution. And all the failures related to it are not found at all in the institution itself, but in the hardness of the human heart. Now, I guarantee you, 
Unless you are reading the Bible and so forth, those articles that appeared in the paper probably seem to you, as the average American, a lot more convincing than if you have been in this pattern we talked about of pulling aside and asking somebody like Jesus the question. So is marriage a failed institution? Where did marriage come from? Did we just make it up? Which is what secularists and secularism says all the time. And the answer of the Bible is no, we did not. It's a divinely revealed institution. And a divinely sanctioned institution. And, most fundamentally, a divinely invented institution. And all of its struggles only prove that we are sinful people. See, that's the kind of question. See, they're pulling aside. They're asking Jesus that question. And he tells them. He tells his disciples, well, look, this is the nature of marriage. From the beginning, God sanctioned it. But the question at hand here is, well, why weren't we able to cast out the demon? And that takes us to our third fundamental, which is on prayer. We are to practice the fundamental practice of prayer, the fundamental place of prayer, within the Christian life. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now first, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't, he doesn't ask them anything about their technique. So how did you go about trying to heal the guy? Did you place hands on him, or were you standing at a distance? I definitely recommend the placing of the hands. Uh, and, then, and then what did you do? What did you do first? What did you do second? What did you do third? He doesn't go into any of that. He doesn't approach their issue with anything like that. Instead, he simply goes directly to one of the fundamental things, and and it's just prayer. And throughout the New Testament, prayer and the place of prayer in the life of the Christian and the life of the apostles, frankly, is, we're told over and over again, it's a, it's a fundamental thing. My brother has been part of this a prayer movement that I don't know how long ago it, it started. It, it's called the uh, Acts 6-4 Fellowship. Acts 6, you remember, is where um, the Greeks are approaching the apostles and saying our widows are being overlooked. In the daily service, uh, you guys need to do something about it. They agree, and they establish the office of deacons. But then in, in Acts 6.4, they state the two fundamental responsibilities that the apostles are going to continue to carry out. And the prayer movement loves the fact For good reason. That not only is prayer in the mix, but it's stated first in Acts 6-4. 
So the guys leading this movement are the guy that was at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir for years, Jim Simbola, another guy that was a pastor up at Grace Church in Edina for a few years, Daniel Henderson. Um, but their text is Acts 6-4, where the apostles say, but we, we apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. Um, in Greek grammar, the, the pronoun is put all the way to the front, so it's fronted for great emphasis. We apostles, we apostles are about two very fundamental things. Prayer and the service of the word. For our purposes, though, we will devote ourselves to prayer. We will devote ourselves to prayer. Jesus says this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. It's that fundamental. It's that life-changing. Now, Jesus is also quite realistic about prayer. He's both realistic and optimistic about prayer in an amazing combination of thoughts that you find if you pay attention to what he says. Um, for instance, Luke 18, 1 to 7, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always, to the effect that it is necessary that they should always pray and not lose heart. And he said to them, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Now you see the really optimistic thing about that? Won't God answer prayer better than this unjust judge? Will he actually delay very long over them. That's the optimistic part. But you can't forget the more realistic part that he mentioned up on top. Namely, pray always, but don't lose heart. Why would he have to add, don't lose heart? Well, because very often your prayers are not going to seem to be accomplishing anything. But you stay at it anyways. You be like this importunate widow and you stay praying for the same things 
and you stay at it because God honors that more than an unjust judge would. So it's a great practice. But if you think you're going to get instantly one miracle after the next, one miracle after the next, one miracle after the next, you're going to be disappointed because that's not going to be how it is. That's not our experience. We'll close off with a, another recommendation of John Calvin as a commentator. What seems to be in this same regard a very, very extremely positive, almost an idealistic view of the life of prayer as a Christian is found in the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he's got that series of rapid-fire commandments for the Christian life, beginning in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. I don't know about you, but I've tended to read that. So this is a really, really high ideal, right? Where you reach the place where You pray without ceasing. You're just the kind of person that disciplines yourself to pray all day long. You you pray about everything. You sort of move through knife, and there's almost like a glow about you because you are this supersonic, prayer-saturated soul. Calvin reads the text and he says, I don't quite think that's it. I don't really quite think that's it. You're going to pray that much, but not like that. Here's what he writes. Here's what he wrote. When we are cast down and laid low, We are raised up again and again by prayer because we lay the burden which oppressed us upon God. But, he says, since every day and indeed every moment there are many things which can disturb our peace, And drive away our joy. He bids us pray without ceasing. In other words, as you experience the tremendously 
debilitating, disappointing, discouraging elements of the average day of your life. Turn them one by one over to the Lord in prayer. And by living in a sinful world, you'll almost certainly quickly transform yourself into a person who prays without ceasing. Because our troubles are so ceaseless. Our challenges are so ceaseless. Our sinful tendencies are so ceaseless. I am confident that he's right about that. That's more the picture. That's more the picture. The final thing to notice here, and it's incredibly encouraging as well as incredibly obvious, straightforward. In Jesus' mind, notice what, he, what, he, what he's teaching the disciples. Look. Positively speaking, if you pray, you'll be able to accomplish things that you won't accomplish without prayer. That's simply what he tells them. You'll never get something like this done without prayer. There's things in the world you'll never really see them happen. Unless you discipline yourself to pray about them. Unless you remind yourself all the time what Jesus said in John fifteen five. Without me, you can do nothing. And therefore, we ask. Therefore, we go to him. And so as we move through life, through the rest of our lives, uh, let that, that line from Casablanca remind you And in the spiritual realm, it's probably truer than anywhere else. The fundamental things do apply. Be sure they do. Be sure the fundamental things apply in your life. As time goes by. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to have something like prayer, to have something like worship, to gather together, to have your words that answer fundamental questions, Lord, these fundamental things. Enable us to apply them to ourselves as we move through our days. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.